Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Wednesday, January 10th. Um, News alert, news alert. We could get a foot of snow. Uh, Supposedly it's going to start snowing Thursday night and snow into Friday. And it's going to be cold and it's going to be snowy. And you know uh, why? Because it's winter. Good God. You know, even some of the local outlets, like, you know, Block Club Chicago. I mean, putting it out as an alert. (sighs) Okay. This was always one of my pet peeves uh, when I was in television. The idea of it's winter, it's cold. Let's send a reporter out so they can tell us it's cold and it's snowing. Oh, my God, that's brilliant. Brilliant man on the street reporting. So, yeah, Um, maybe if you're planning to get on an airplane This might be something you're going to take into consideration. Um, They're saying 8 to 12 inches. But, you know, I think I uh, just a few days ago was warning you about a huge winter storm. Yeah, that that one didn't really materialize. Now did it. (sighs) So how are you today? I hope you're having a great day. We have a really uh, interesting show today. A lot of fun people to talk to. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I hope you can stick with us. Um, big news of the day. Uh, you know, um, they're, um, you know, trying to um, make Hunter Biden the downfall of Joe Biden, this campaign. Oh, we need him to testify. And he said, OK, I'll testify, but as long, only as long as it's public. And they were like, oh, no, not public. No, 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 you can't do that. You cannot testify in public. Must be in private. Private, Mr. Biden. So uh, one the congressional committees met today. And guess who showed up? Hunter Biden. It wasn't there to testify. Just walked in and sat in the gallery. To show them once again, because they're trying to make a big deal out of the fact that Hunter Biden won't show up. Hunter Biden is avoiding us. Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden. Uh, Yeah, he did. He did show up. And um, when Marjorie Taylor Greene started talking, remember when she showed a, a poster, a blown up photo of him naked? Full frontal nudity in the House of Representatives. And nobody for a minute thought that um, she should be chastised for that. Anywho, when she started to speak, he got up and he left. And his lawyer was talking about, you know, this is just such a joke. This is just such a joke. He's clearly somebody who is more than happy to show up, but he doesn't want to show up in private. Why? Uh, there's a Democratic congresswoman from Texas by the name of Jasmine Crockett. We've played her sound bites before. She is um, very plain spoken uh, and very to the point. 
Why does Hunter Biden not want to appear behind closed doors? Because, as has been said before, um, he knows that his remarks will be taken out of context, that there will be spin and there will be misinformation leaked out of out of those hearings. Jasmine Crockett reminded her beloved Republican colleagues of that today and once again tried to explain to them why Hunter Biden was willing to testify, but not behind closed doors. Listen to this. Let me tell you why nobody wants to talk to y'all behind closed doors, because y'all lie. That's just the bottom line. You have done it thus far in this investigation. You have done it this far as it relates to this committee. In every single hearing, y'all spin, spin, spin. I don't know how y'all are still standing right now because you should be quite dizzy from all the spinning that you're constantly doing when it comes to spinning the truth. You talk about free and fair elections, but you back a guy who we know tried to steal the election. And this isn't about what Democrats have to say. Let me remind you, for those of you that don't know how the justice system works, it's not a matter of the president went in and indicted Trump, but we are talking about grand juries. Grand juries are comprised of American citizens and the people that have entered pleas of guilty that will be flipping on your leader in a minute. They are Republicans. I do want to point that out. And half of them were Republicans that were handpicked by Donald Trump himself. So to be clear, whatever happens to your little leader, It's going to be because of the actions that he took. So you can talk all you want to about how January 6th was nonsense, but all of y'all were running at that time. Y'all were grabbing y'all's gas masks and y'all were running to your offices because you didn't know if they were coming to kill you. You should have cared that somebody was there to protect you, but instead you want to play games because you found out that it was your leader that decided that he wanted to propagate an insurrection on our country. So don't tell me that you care about the Constitution, because you don't. All you care about is Trump getting reelected, and I'll yield the last of my time to my leader. Ah, Jasmine. God, she is a breath of fresh air. Uh, Jim from Chicago is calling in to comment on all this silliness. Hey, Jim, how are you today? Hi, Joan. How are you? I'm right with Jasmine. I couldn't believe it. (laughs) When, when, when the Republicans said this country was founded on the rule of law, I thought, my God, are they, are, they've got a candidate who's the most lawless candidate in the history of America. And just the, it's incredible, these Republicans, I, but yet they're bound to determine to vote Republican regardless how many warts and moles this guy who has, they're going to vote for him. <laughs> what? Yeah. That's what yep. kills me. And I think when Hunter Biden came in and sat in the gallery today, it really threw him for a loop. And I think Republicans panicked that they were going to lose the PR uh, awards of the day. I don't know if you heard a Nancy Mace, who was a long time ago postulated as a possible Republican moderate and has proven to be as right wing as they get. She started screaming. Like she started screaming at him. It was just unbelievable. I, it, and, and it was I, clearly she was clearly showboating because she wanted uh, to steal away some of the attention. But, you know, when Hunter Biden got up and left the chamber, all of these photographers and camera people went right out. There were like a dozen of them. And Republicans must have um, 
thought to themselves, damn, we lost the PR war there, didn't we? Uh, Joan, if it wasn't so, so farcical, if it wasn't so farcical, it's, you know, the shame is that, you know, that we were stuck in, in like 1950 or something. I mean, it's really gone berserk now, but everything, you know, Putin is trying to have uh, Russia back to, to 1800 and, you know, the, the Roe versus Wade to 1950. Mm-hmm. And this Congress doesn't uh, seem to uh, get along with anyway. They, I, that was, it's right getting with the, crazier the and crazier, isn't it, Jim? And I think, I think that it's going. This is we are seeing a preview of what we can expect in the coming months. By the way, there are two hundred and ninety-nine days till the next election. Two hundred ninety-nine days. When you say it like that doesn't sound quite so far off. And I think the Republicans are going to become more and more hysterical because I think they see the lay of the land. And I at at a certain point, I don't think they even care if their party takes a beating as long as they themselves don't lose their seat. So I think we are going to see a real every man for themselves kind of attitude and it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with this budget you know they've um agreed you know mike johnson and uh, chuck schumer have come up with a dollar figure for the government budget and um you know chuck schumer and the democrats in congress are like okay let's get it passed um mitch mcconnell trying to uh, slow the whole process down, saying, well, you know, let's let's just do another like 30 day budget and and then we'll we'll vote on this because, you know, we really it takes time. Everything in the Senate takes so much time and we really need more time. And uh, I think how that evolves is going to be really interesting because so far, Mike Johnson has done what it, the exact same thing that got Kevin McCarthy kicked out. He made a deal with Democrats. And, um, you know, they are not happy about that. I think, Jim, things are going to be completely insane going forward. I think we all need to um, I think we all need to put on our heavy parkas and pull up our hoods and get our snow pants so that all of the political nonsense doesn't get through to us. Whether or not you're going outside, I think this is the kind of uniform we need to be wearing in the house to keep us protected <laughs> at all times. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. You're very welcome, Jim. Um, more that I want to share with you. Jamie Raskin had a few choice words for Congress, too. I'm going to share that with you when we come right back after this. Alexa, play WCPT. WCPT from TuneIn. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We've been talking about the fact that Hunter Biden showed up uh, in Congress today, just sat in the gallery, just letting everybody know he was there. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The Republicans were upset about that. Holy macaroni. They are trying to sell this story that Hunter Biden is refusing to appear before Congress. And the truth of the matter is, 
and I hope you will correct anybody you're talking to who doesn't have this story right. The truth of the matter is Hunter Biden has said he absolutely will testify before Congress. He absolutely will. Whatever you want to talk to me about, I'm your man. I'm there. But it's not going to be behind closed doors because I don't trust you. I don't trust you to tell the truth. I um, I think I don't trust you pretty much sums up the whole thing. In addition to Jasmine Crockett, who we heard a cutting to the chase, if you will, uh, Jamie Raskin was also talking today. And he's, you know what? This has been going on for a year and he's tired of it. He's tired of these empty accusations and no proof showing up. He's tired of the whole mess. And um, like Jasmine Crockett, he let everybody know today. Listen to this. If you have documented receipts of foreign governments writing checks or giving credit card payments to Joe Biden, show it to us. We've been at this for a year now. We haven't seen anything. Then we show you in our more than 100 page report, the documented receipts of money going to Donald Trump. And you don't care about it. In other words, you don't care about the principle that our government leaders should not be on the take from foreign governments. That's outrageous. Well, the because I, I, I will you. oppose any government official of any political party who's on the take with money from foreign governments, and I hope you would join me in that. And yet we've shown it to you, and yet you guys don't care about it. I mean, that's just unfathomable to me. Now, at least the the Trump family has responded to it. I mean, they're very nervous about it. You know what Trump said? The Trump's people say, well, he didn't take his $400,000 government salary. You know what? That's the only thing you're allowed to take is your salary from Americans, not money from corrupt Saudi monarchs who ordered the assassination of journalists, not from Chinese communist bureaucrats crushing the human rights of people in Tibet and the Uyghurs. You're not supposed to be on the take from those governments. That's what our Constitution says. Then they say, well, we return the profits these guys don't, these guys think it's, well, if it's a hotel, they could just keep the money. At least the Trump family understands some lawyer told them what the Constitution says. We return the profits. Well, guess what? They didn't give us the accounting of the profits, and that's not what the Constitution says. The Constitution says you can't take any payments at all from a foreign government without going to the Congress of the United States. It's not that you can keep the profits from foreign governments. Do you guys understand what you're doing here? You're putting that Gentlemen, right time's expired. Hmm. Gentlemen's time is expired, but not his energy, not his not his heat. And, you know, I mean, behind Jamie Raskin, if you saw the video of this, one of his aides was holding up uh, a big blow up of a check. Remember, there's been reporting in the last few weeks. We haven't uh, talked a lot about it on the show, but there's been reporting that not individuals, but actual governments wrote big checks to Donald Trump. Some of them rented um, space at his properties. They found ways to pay him off. And um, he made millions and millions of dollars directly from foreign governments when he was president. And nobody believed what he said. Oh, you know, I don't have to put everything in a blind trust because my I'm just going to turn it over to my sons who are going to run it. Yeah. The sons who at every chance he gets talks about how they're idiots. Yeah. 
talks about how they're idiots and he doesn't trust them and he doesn't understand why they're so terrible. Yeah, we're supposed to believe he turned all of his business dealings over to them. Mm, That's a stretch. Let's go back to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Ron, thanks for calling. Yes. uh, Does anybody remember over a year ago when the Republicans uh, became the majority in the House? They were screaming and shouting, we're going to do all kinds of investigations, 35, 40 investigations, and all they have done so far is investigate Hunter Biden. And if there's any questions that come up about Donald Trump, well, let's investigate Hunter Biden again. Let's issue more subpoenas. (laughs) How can we tie Hunter Biden to this? Oh, I'm sorry. Children are starving in Africa. Must be Hunter Biden. Right. Let's let's have a slideshow of Hunter Biden's private parts. (laughs) Yeah, really. All right, thank you. Thank you, Ron. Uh, our uh, one of our Illinois Congress people, Sean Caston, uh, posted on so, so, sorry, posted on social media. This is what he wrote: Every congressional session, we get a new pin. It's our ID on the floor for the next two years. Today, we're getting a new pin halfway through the term because House Republicans didn't like the color of the old pin. Big congrats to them on their first tangible accomplishment of the 118th Congress. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for sharing that with us. Let's go back to the phone lines. Our good friend Bobby is on the phone from Indiana. Hello, Bobby. How are you doing? Good friend. Hey, boy. uh, Sure is glad to hear you back home. Thank you. It's good to be back. Are you feeling okay? I'm feeling almost 100%. But you know what? Uh, Like you, Bobby, I'm a certain demographic, and let's face it, I'll never be 100% ever again. No, no, I got got a lot of dents in my fenders. (laughs) What Um, was it my uncle used to say? He used to sell cars, and he used to say, my engine is still good, but my chassis is falling apart. Yeah, well, yeah. I don't, well, even my engine's got, got a lot of leaks. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, uh, well, an uh, interesting situation over here, and it kind of it says a lot about our dear president-to-be, at least uh, that's what he's thinking. Um, you know, I told you before about this uh, wonderful chap out by me that uh, – right beneath old glory has been Ugh. displaying all manners of these gun flags. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then a few weeks ago, all of these flags came down, even, you know, even the U S flag. And there was nothing. I said, what happened? Did he died. Did he move? Well, then, uh, the stars and stripes came back on the pole again. Hmm. And then, uh, right around New Year's Day, I said, oh, and now it's got something below it again. And what is it? Trump 2024. Oh. So, I mean, <laughs> the history of this guy is is totally wacko. Yeah. And now he's got, and doesn't it fit somebody like that? It, that's what he's going to put up, you know. So uh, it's going to be a uh, 
at the very minimum, extremely interesting year, shall I say. Yeah. You know, I understand that there's a small, hardcore group of people who really, really do have, like, almost a religious connection to Donald Trump. I mean, like some sort of messiah. They just can't see anything bad about him. And then there are some people, maybe the super rich, who just see any Republican president as a tax-cutting machine. But people who may have thought that somehow Donald Trump was going to be their champion. I remember talking to a lot of the union, trade union guys, and the, I talked to the people in management, and they knew Trump was a, a huckster, a shyster. Um, but they said that there was a lot of union rank and file back in the day that seemed to somehow think this guy was their guy. That middle group, I'm wondering how they are still with this man. Do they really hate black and brown people so much? Yes. yes. Do you think well, that's there, it? There, there's uh I know that's it. There, there are the people that are that with him now, uh, by and large, from what I can tell, from what I've seen, and, and, and you know, the ones that I've talked to or heard people, they are messed up folks. And there are quite a few of them. I think more than we probably originally thought. Uh, Except my brother-in-law, he he was saying years ago, said, watch out, because it's a lot bigger portion of our population uh, than we think. That's well, you know, that's way. an interesting point, Bobby, because that's one thing that has really opened my eyes. Yes, I always knew that there were homophobic, racists, white supremacists, uh, people around there. I, I knew that there were ignorant people out there. I guess I just didn't realize how many of them there were, because I think for a lot of them, for a long time, they kept their worst impulses in check because it wasn't socially acceptable. That's one thing Donald Trump did with making fun of disabled people and trying to kick Muslims, keep Muslims out of the country. He made he made racism he made it cool. He made it okay. He made it fashionable for the for the the, the, the super right wingers to you know to really uh, flaunt their uh, yes right wingerness. You know, but it's how can I say this? So if you go, let's go back in the wayback machine, and I had a. A, a good chum when I was a, a, a kid back in the 60s. Now, his father was in the U.S. military, in the Navy, in World War II. And he served in the Pacific. At the same time, my dad was in the Army in Europe. Um, his grandfather came from Germany, and they were, they were big fans in the 30s of Hitler. Hmm. And uh, this rubbed off on the sun. And uh, at the time, my dad 
probably would have been killed in action had he not gotten trench foot Mm. at the early stages of the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. This chap, and I saw the photograph. He's sitting in a chair on the deck of some ship out in the Pacific, and he's got a newspaper. And he's got it folded over so you can read the headline over, you know, over it. And he's got this big grin on his face. And the headline is, Allies Pushed Back in Ardennes. And this guy <laughs> is, a, you know, was actually in the combat zone in the Pacific at that time reading this about what's happening with my dad and his outfits and all the other, you know, Americans, British, you know, at that time. And both his father from Germany and him were staunch, rock-rib Republican voters. (sighs) All of them, all of those years. My dad, by the way, <laughs> was a blue-collar Democrat union man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, mo- that must have made for some interesting holiday discussions. Oh, Bobby, yeah. I gotta, I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta take okay. a break. Thank you so much for checking in, my friend. Always good to hear from you. Good one. Take care. We are going to uh, be back with more after this. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, some people think that uh, being a news reporter is an is an easy life and oh, how glamorous, you know, you you get to go everywhere. You get to talk to everybody. How cool they don't realize that the job comes with risks. You can have lots of problems when you're out in the field, not the least of which is being manhandled by the person you're trying to talk to. Sean Kitchen, who is our correspondent from the Keystone in Pennsylvania, had that experience recently. Listen to this. Congressman Perry. Sir. Today's the third anniversary of January 6th. Will you mind trying to talk about your involvement in overturning the 2020 election results? So let me first reject the premise of your question. Get your hands off me. Don't touch me. You just touch me. Getting grabbed by his very own congressman, Sean Kitchen, is here to talk about this. Sean, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I, I have fully recovered, if uh, you, you want to know. so Excellent. I, I am doing well. <laughs> so explain to us where you were and what was going on. Yeah, so um, Saturday was the third anniversary of January 6th. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are aware of that, but in Pennsylvania, we had the opening day of the Pennsylvania Farm Show, which is similar to like the Iowa State Fair, mm-hmm. but it's in the wintertime and it's indoors. Uh, I'm going to say it's not as grand as the Iowa State Fair, but like it's pretty much our Iowa State Fair. And 
it brings in with this being an election year, um, we'll always bring in like a lot of political people and the state politicians, um, different secretaries, um, the governor, but in an election year, it brings in a lot more people, um, mm-hmm. like Senator McCourt, where Senator Casey was there, uh, Dave McCormick is running against Senator Casey is, um, was visiting and, um, Scott Perry, my congressman of all people, uh, was out at the battle on January 6th. And I mean, I couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask him about his involvement in trying to overturn 2020 election results because of how inaccessible he is here in central Pennsylvania. Um, he hasn't had a town hall, I believe since 2019. Um, and he is not a very public facing figure here in our district. Well, that's a that's an issue that I, I I'm always befuddled that somebody who actually wants to keep their job and gets reelected basically hides from their constituents, which I think is always a bad sign. But what exactly happened when the two of you interacted there? Um, so I asked him about a question. I had my phone like pretty much at my like shoulder or not shoulder height, but like like chest height, my phone in front of me holding my arm. Um, what happened was I asked a question, like we we're standing about like two feet away from each other. He kept on getting in my face. Like he wanted to get like six inches from my face. And I kept on backing up, like give us some space because you could clearly hear us talking. Um, you know, it was not like that loud and you can hear a foot and a half in front of you, but he kept on getting in my face. And the third time, um, after I moved, he went to go grab my, either my wrist or my cell phone from my hand to make sure he wasn't in, like, frame of the camera or of my uh. cell phone at the time. And that's exactly, I mean, right, and I decided to end that right there when I said, hey, just get your hands off me. Because, I mean, you can't see it, but he did put his, he did grab my wrist. And it's the type of thing where, I mean, you don't, it, it's a very close quarter uh, position. Being a reporter, you have to be very close with people. You don't expect, there's no expectations of privacy or like personal space at times, but there's also like, you don't expect to be grabbed at either by the person you're interviewing. (laughs) No. Um, Especially when they they disagree with the question that they're being asked. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You know, again, politics 101 You know, um, you don't do anything to make the situation worse. You don't do anything to paint yourself in a in a in a bad light. Um, And I know I was I was I was listening and watching. And I I don't know if he would have walked away on his own. There was a woman with him. I don't know if she was a family or an aide who basically grabbed his arm and was was like, go ahead. Oh, no, that, that was the chief of staff. I had to pull him away. Uh, that just, um, uh, what reaction have you gotten since you posted that video? Um, I mean, it's, I've had a bunch of people reaching out, obviously, are you okay? Blah, 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 what happened? But I mean, uh, we have a thing in here in central, like in this part of the area where he's also not really well liked with, uh, Republican. Really? No, he's especially when it comes to like state and local stuff. Like he, this over the past ten years, this district has tightened up and it's becoming a lot more bluer. Like what's happening here in Harrisburg suburbs, um, in this area, was what happened, say in like Northern Virginia, 
a few cycles ago when it finally turned blue. We uh, we have a lot of growing suburbs out here. Um, we're an hour away from hour and a half away from DC, Philly, Baltimore. So you're we're pretty central location, and this area keeps on getting bluer and bluer. And you know, like these are the type of incidents where I feel like he's starting to feel the pressure. But mm-hmm. also got Republicans who want to get stuff done, like who want the lights to work, who wants the you know basic functions of government to work. Um, and he's simply not doing that out here. Wow. Um, do you... Do and he's also the head of the Freedom Caucus, too, or he was yeah. for a couple of years, too. So I don't think people realize that. Um, Perry's one of the most extreme members of Congress. Um, he was head of the House Freedom Caucus for a couple of years, and he just got voted out um, of the Freedom Caucus. This is, this is uh, so interesting to me. Do you think that this behavior with you, these lack of town halls, these extreme positions, um, I mean, my sense is that, you know, Pennsylvania might not be a a beautiful blue state, but my feel is that Pennsylvania is trending far more blue than it is red. Is, Is that is that wrong? Would you say it's that's not the case? I'm just wondering how somebody like that expects to continue operating in Congress. Well, I mean, yeah, Pennsylvania is trending blue. And I mean, um, one of the counties where his district is in is one of the fastest growing counties in the state. And it's also one of the fastest like growing democratic counties in the state. Um, I mean, these are states like my county, like for instance, here in 2023, we talked about this last time I was on, um, we just elected a county commissioner, Democratic county commissioner, commission for the first time in 100 years. Um, a couple of election cycles ago, Cumberland County, which is right across the river here, that went blue, that went blue for the first time ever in a gubernatorial election. So, I mean, like these areas, let's just say it's starting to become a lot more purple and it's starting to get more blue than red. Wow. Hey, Sean, while I've got you here, I also wanted to ask you about the reporting that you posted Oh, gosh, I guess it was just yesterday where you were covering uh, Dave McCormick. Tell us who he is in Pennsylvania politics. Uh, so McCormick is a um, is a Connecticut hedge fund manager uh, from he's from Pennsylvania, but he spent the past uh, 20 years living in Connecticut, um, lavish Gold Coast. Um, I think he rents like a nine, he rented a nineteen million dollar mansion. Um, he was the head of one of the largest uh, hedge funds in the country. Um, he ran for a Senate in twenty twenty two and lost to uh, the TV doctor, uh, Doctor Mehmet Oz. Um, and he's now making another run at it to go against um, uh, Senator Casey here in Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, I believe I heard you say he lives in Connecticut. So this is like another carpetbagger. Like, I believe Dr. Oz claimed he was living with his mother-in-law, and that's why he qualified to be a local. Is is that what's going on here? Um, I would would say so. I mean, he, like, McCormick is actually from Pennsylvania, well, well, yeah, he hasn't lived. He hasn't lived here with for like twenty. I'm from years. Ohio, Sean, and <laughs> yeah. I am. Um, 
I grew I up there. Able- I went to college there. Um, but if I ran for Senate, I think people would say, you don't live in Ohio. You haven't lived in Ohio since, you know, you, you're, you, you were born there. You grew up there. You went to college there. But hello, you've only been a visitor since then. And also, like, with his um, Pennsylvania connections, um, back in the 2000s, he took over a, um, like, one of his head funds. Uh, they took over a company in Pittsburgh, like a manufacturing company, and was responsible for laying off 500 people as soon as they bought it. So, I mean, like, the, he has a um, very interesting economic record going into a year when, uh, you know, when we've seen the economic gains in this country go to, people like McCormick. Um, and one of the things that Senator Casey here in Pennsylvania has been really good at, especially over the past four or five months, is his office has been doing um, reports on greedflation, which is ha- looking into how corporations are using, uh, are driving inflation through their record profits, you know, instead of like the price of goods are going up because of uh, corporations just price gouging people. And this is one of the things that Senator Casey and his economic messaging, he's been really hitting on um, over the past couple months. And you were um, reporting on a fundraiser Dave McCormick did, um, which, you know, I always think it's interesting when these real when these really, really rich people, obviously, yes, I'm really, really rich. And yes, because I'm rich, I think I'm smart and I should be in government making decisions. <laughs> but don't expect me to spend my own money. Yes. Um, yeah. So yesterday or no, I think today or tomorrow he's having a fundraiser with um Someone who attended January 6th, um, he was in D.C. for January 6th on, and was on the National Mall taking photos in front of, uh, or selfies in front of the Capitol. Uh, but that's not McCormick's only connection to January 6th. Um, his, uh, the person that's running his path, um, Pennsylvania Rising, this person uh, is the Allegheny County Republican Party chair, who is also one of the fake electors. Um, McCormick has a number of people on staff. Um, associate with the fake elector scheme, which was Trump's attempt to uh, create chaos through the Electoral College County vote process and the certification process in the major swing states. And one of the people that he paid um, ended up getting charged in the RICO case in Georgia, um, was involved in trying to overturn the election results on Trump's behalf in Georgia. How does he spin this to voters? Um, I think Republicans just don't care. I don't know how you spend it to voters, but I mean, I think like um, the Republicans in this primary, they just they uh, they just they they don't care anymore. It's been memory hauled. Um, and when you ask them about January sixth, they just don't want to answer about it. They want everybody to forget about it, forget about it, and move on. Moving on. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. So does this guy have a shot, do you think? Um, I don't think so. Uh, Bob Casey is um, a political dynasty here in Pennsylvania. His father was um, Robert Casey Sr. He was a really beloved governor. Um, Casey has been in the Senate since 2006. And really, he's going to hold on to that seat until he wants to give it up. Um, this might be his last term coming up after election day, like going into 2030, but, um, 
it will be, it will be, if Bob Casey ends up losing on election night, then it's just a really bad night for Democrats nationally. Let's just put it like that. It's going to be really mm-hmm. hard for Casey to lose. And if Casey loses, then it's just a really bad night, like for, for Democrats in general. Because it would have to be like that bad in Pennsylvania for him to lose. Um, this is uh, this is really, really interesting. Um, what is going on here? Why do you think people like McCormick run? Is it really just hubris? Is it really just ego? I think that or power. I don't know why. I, honestly, I don't know why. I, I don't know why you want to uh, run for a job or have a job like this when you're already worth like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, no, I think I think it's I think it's ego. I think it's power and having power over, uh, you know, the people below you, over workers and or, yeah, over, over working people. Hmm. Um, unbelievable. I mean, I've I've seen this, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, and it always strikes me as so incredible that anybody. Particularly sorry about this, Sean, but particularly men who are either successful in the corporate world or inherit a lot of money or somehow make a lot of money like Elon Musk is a good example that somehow they believe that the fact that they have done this means that they are better. They are smarter. They are more capable of making decisions. They should be leading other people. Um is that is that kind of what you feel is going on here? Uh, with McCormick, yeah, I think so. I mean, I also, I, I don't, I honestly don't know like what his play is for this. I don't know why he wants to run. I think what it is because Republicans don't have, um, they don't have a bench here in Pennsylvania, right? If you look at who their bench is for statewide candidates, um, Doug Mastriano, who lost the governor's race uh, in twenty twenty two might be the most high-profile Republican in Pennsylvania, and he's not going to win a statewide. So, I mean, like, I, either, like, this is a power thing, an ego trip, or Republicans like Mitch McConnell are begging McCormick uh, to be a viable candidate because uh, they don't have anyone that comes close to that here in the state. Mm-hmm. How is John Fetterman doing? I mean, I'm not talking about, I'm not asking you to give us a, a health update. How is he doing in the minds of the people of Pennsylvania? Um, I think he's doing good. Um, you know, I think he, I mean, I, he was at the farm show the other day. Um, really? I was, yeah, I was following Fetterman around the farm show. Um, I mean, like, I, I think people have already seen how he dresses in the Senate. He wears those Carhartt hoodies, uh, basketball shorts. He was wearing them at the farm show the other day. And I mean, he pretty much like fit right in with the crowd. Uh, there with his people pretty much. And I mean, like he couldn't go 10 feet without someone asking him for a picture and to take a selfie with him. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like he's still, he's someone that's loved here in this state. I'm, I'm really glad to, uh, glad to hear that because I think he is, I think he's a breath of fresh air. And frankly, I think that if he hadn't had the health issues that he did, I mean, I could have seen him, you know, at some point in the future running for president. Um, I think he was I think he was that amazing. He had that kind of 
street karma that you see um, that appeals to the blue collar folks. And yet clearly this is a man who is very smart and very competent. And I can see him appealing to intellectuals as well. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, I feel like he's also getting a lot better uh, over the past couple of times I've seen him uh, with his hearing and being able to talk. Like, I feel like he's able to talk actually pretty good right now. And, I mean, he's he's fast thinking on his feet. Um, and he has this, like, uh, snarky type attitude. Not snarky in a bad way, but, like, he likes to... He, oh, he, he, he definitely calls it like it is. What was it that oh. was going on? And something was going on in the Senate and... You know, Joe Manchin and Mitt Romney were all upset that he wasn't dressing better. And he said something like, if you guys vote for there was some issue at hand. And he was like, you guys vote for this. I'll wear a suit every day. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really funny, he's been hitting on uh, Menendez with the gold bars. And um, at the farm (laughs) show, he uh, was talking to we were going through a butterfly exhibit. Senator Fetterman really loves butterflies. And loves monarchs. Um, but he was talking to a woman. He's like, I have to pay for it. He's like, I don't accept gifts unless I can get some gold bars off of you. And everyone just started laughing, just like hearing him. I mean, he's still like cracking jokes about like that type of stuff, too. But, you know, for a while, um, he was using a, like a transcription service uh, so that he could he could read what people were saying in various um, committee hearings. Um, did you, was he using any kind of technology like that at the, at the farm event? Uh, yeah, he's still using that on his cell phone. Um, mm-hmm. Like he usually, someone usually holds, I think he hits a staffer that carries an iPad or he'll hold his, his cell phone when people are talking. So, I mean, I think, I think he's going to have to use that for, uh, I would be surprised if he has to use that permanently, but I mean, he's coming along with it. Um, I know. I mean, like he's showing that you could still do that in public without, um, you know, having a disability affect you like that yeah. or impact you in a negative way. Take us through what you're seeing in Pennsylvania for 2024. Who are the, people we need to watch what are the issues that we need to pay attention to um so right now uh well i would pay attention to i mean i'm gonna do a little shameless self-promotion but i would i would really pay attention to the scott perry race um i plan on covering this um really with the carrier a this is my congressional district and perry's going to be one of the most vulnerable republicans here in the state um I would say this year, um, there's already eight Democrats looking to run. Um, they have to go on the ballot first, obviously, but um, we, we have we have legitimate candidates running um, in this district who are really looking forward to go on the offensive with Scott Perry, especially with January 6th, reproductive rights, um, and issues that might not have been brought up in previous elections. And with a district like this, uh, you might be able to see him get taken down this year or, you know, it'll, it'll come really close. Um, we have the Senate race here with Casey and McCormick. Um, 
we also have a really good crop of um, of row offices here in Pennsylvania. We have our auditor general, our attorney general, and our treasurer are up this year. Uh, the Democrats were able to endorse for um, auditor general and treasurer. And with the auditor general, we have uh, someone who is named uh, Malcolm Kenyatta running for auditor general. That's a party endorsement. Um, you might have seen him on MSNBC a bunch of times. He ran for Senate last year against Fetterman and Lamb. Um, he, came, he pulled in 10% in the, um, in the primary and really spent the last year and a half working his butt off uh, to get Fetterman elected, but also continued building those relationships with parties around the, around the, the state. And um, he's someone who's going to uh, climb very far in Pennsylvania politics, in my mm. opinion. Interesting. Something to keep. When you said eight Democrats are running, you mean eight Democrats want to run for Congress? Or are you talking about eight Democrats uh, want to run for uh, all the offices you were just talking about? Uh, we have eight Democrats running for Perry seat right now. Ah, that's what I thought you meant. So, yeah, sorry to clear that up. But no, there's a lot of enthusiasm here with this race. Um, I think Democrats are really fired up here. And there's an actual shot in um, defeating him. Um, and we also have, and I'll get back to our, the stuff like the down ballot races on the statewide. We have, we have some legitimate candidates uh, for our row offices who will be knocking doors, um, you know, pretty much every day until election day mm-hmm. uh, for Biden and the rest of the ticket. So, I mean, we have a pretty coherent um, in aligned like party with in Pennsylvania. So, uh, Sean, are you going to sacrifice a valuable hour of your life watching the uh, CNN presidential debate between Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis tonight? Uh, no, I am not. I do not have cable, so <laughs> I, uh, I will not be I will not be tuning into that. I have a lot of other stuff to get done uh, <laughs> this week. So. Well, you know what? Another uh, well, I feel on the one hand that I feel a compulsion like I should watch it. But then what's the point? You know, it's not like either of them has a shot. The only way either of them would have any kind of shot, because I don't think they're even they even have a shot at a vice presidential slot is if Trump keels over. And, you know, I mean, I know he's overweight and out of shape, but I don't see any indication that he's uh, that he's about to drop over. So what's the point? I mean, maybe, yeah, exactly. Maybe if they brought Gavin Newsom back on stage for, for Gavin hour, Newsom as the be... moderator. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not going to say, like, I'm not too big with on Newsom, but, I mean, like, he really hit home with that DeSantis debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, he did. I hope, uh, I hope the Biden campaign really uses him as a spokesperson or as they like to say as a surrogate which always seems really weird a kind of use of words to me but I, I i think that he and um eric swalwell pete Buttigieg, i think they're really good at bringing um the the positivity and the accomplishments of biden to people in a way that is really human and understandable i know definitely yeah um, Sean, thank you for joining us today and keeping us surprised of all things Pennsylvania. I know we're going to be calling on you a lot in the next year. So 
Take care of it's yourself. Be a busy we year, need and I'm you. Forward to it. Okay, great. We are going to take a break for news. We are going to be back with more after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito. Live. Celebrating our power to bring about change. Local. Everybody has to work together. And progressive. I think you get the idea. On WCPT 820. Well, you just heard mentioned at the top of the news, at the top of the hour, uh, that uh, there are still concerns with these loose bolts from the Boeing's Boeing 737 MAX 9. Remember, uh, there was a flight, an Alaska Air flight, that um, had a little bit of a mishap. The um, exit to the plane that was in the middle that could be covered over if you wanted to put seats there, uh, the covering... Uh, somehow, I don't know, came loose. The whole thing popped out. And there was a big hole in the plane. Thank God no one was sucked out of the plane, though there were reports that um, one passenger had his T-shirt sucked off. Uh, it's causing a lot of consternation, a lot of travel delays, and a lot of questions. So, of course, we're going to turn to our favorite Italian, Joe Brancatelli. He does the business news travel newsletter, Joe Sent Me. You can find out all about it at joesentme.com. Mr. Brancatelli, this is not how I thought we would be starting the new year. Uh, let's just say it was a terrible first week for travel, Joan. I mean, and this came after the horrible fatal crash in Japan uh, of two planes on the yes. runway in Haneda. Uh, it's just been a bad week. And the most frightening part of this Alaska Airlines thing is how much we don't know. And worse, how much the regulators don't know about this particular kind of aircraft. What do you, what do you mean, how much we don't know? I mean, haven't there been investigations and examinations? Well, the problem is this, Joan. Um, this plane is called a Boeing 737, but mm -hmm. it's not. It's virtually an entirely new plane. The only reason why it's called 737 at all is financial reasons. It saved Boeing some money with regulators and approvals, and it saved the airline from having to retrain pilots. But this ba basically should be called the Boeing 753 or something. Um, it would, the equivalent would be if I, t if I come on the air tomorrow and claim to be Joan Esposito. <laughs> you know, it's just it's, it's crazy. And everything that's happened to this plane, there were two fatal crashes uh, a few years ago, just as the planes went into service, has come from the fact that this is a plane that's virtually entirely new, that both regulators and airlines assumed was the safe, reliable 737 that's been in service since 1968. This just is not that plane. And everything we're learning has been shocking, frankly. Tell me about some of what we've been learning, what you've been learning. Well, I will tell you so, so that nobody thinks they're a dummy here, okay? If you've never heard of a mid-cabin door plug, neither had 99 and 44% of the people who write about this stuff every day, including myself, which is why some of the early reports you heard on Saturday morning, some people thought it was a door, 
some people, even on the plane, thought a window blew out. But in fact, what this is, is a is more than you said. It's not just a panel covering a hole. There's a plug in the side of the plane that takes the place of where an exit door would be. And then they put a panel on top of that to make it look like the rest of the cabin. Well, as far as we know, the bolts that hold the plug to the to the rest of the fuselage came loose or, or were defective or something. And that's how that fell off the plane. And there was the big gaping hole on the side of the plane. But Joan, on Saturday night, when the National Transportation Safety Board, they are our top regulatory safety agency, came out and gave a report. They gave out wrong information and had to the next day come out and say, uh, it turns out that what we told you, it turns out to be about a cockpit door, wasn't true that Boeing had planned for it to do this, that if there was a hole in the side of the plane, the cockpit door would open. They just didn't tell anybody about it. What so would be the advantage? The, would that somehow do something to equalize the pressure? What would be the advantage of if there's a hole in the plane, the cockpit door flies open? It it almost doesn't matter, Joan. I mean, the, the point is, is that Boeing didn't document it properly so that pilots didn't know it was going to happen. And again, the National Transportation Safety Board comes out and said, my God, the depressurization after the cabin door blew out was so great that it sprung open the cockpit door. Oh. And if you recall, the cockpit doors were reinforced after 9-11 so that yes. no one could enter the cockpit. But Boeing said, oh, no, 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 that's a plan. Um, and probably to equalize pressure. We're not focusing on that right now. But because, frankly, we're worried about the other thing. So most anyone, I mean, it's almost as if your car had a secret door they didn't tell you about, the manufacturer, and it popped off. And suddenly there you are driving down the Dan Ryan or wherever you might be trying to figure out why there's a big hole in the side of your car. And this is what the regulators are facing with this plane. There's all sorts of strange quirks that Boeing built into this plane while calling it the 737. And that's been part of the problem we have even figuring out what went wrong. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember, you know, there was a this this plane particularly had had some pressurization issues and it had been. Um, I don't know whether it was the FAA or the airline said, well, we're not going to fly it over water. We'll just fly it over land, I guess, thinking that way, if we have to have an emergency landing, we we can do it. Um, but there were pressurization issues with this particular plane. And then this accident happened. And then what I read was, OK, United has some of these planes. They're going to ground them and inspect them. Oh, good. They've inspected them. They're all fine. They're going to put them back in service. And then the, within 24 hours, like, oh, wait, no, uh, the federal government says they're going to inspect them. So they're back on the ground again. Uh, is, is that how that happened? Every, yeah. And what you got there was about 10 different things. Um, but, yes, everything you said was accurate. Um, the pressurization issue um, had to do with some lights that came on. You know, as with all of these things, a light will come on again, like your car saying, check your engine. OK, so Alaska decided 
that this plane would not be doing what they call, and I hate to get in the weeds here, it's called ETOPS. It, it's an approval the government gives two engine planes, like this Boeing 737, to fly over water for a certain amount of time without reaching a diversionary airport. For example, Alaska flies these planes to Hawaii a lot from the West Coast. So obviously, there aren't a lot of places you could land between Hawaii and the West Coast if there's a problem. So you, you need a certain certification. When Alaska saw there were pressure problems, they said, okay, we will not fly these planes over the water. We want to have a diversionary airport in case there's a problem. The problem you mentioned about the United saying we inspected them and they're fine, as Alaska said, is that no one has a procedure for inspecting this particular part of the aircraft. So the FAA, instead of saying, okay, just do it yourself and you're fine, went to Boeing and said, what's your procedure for this? And Boeing said, well, we don't actually have one either. Oh, my God. So the FAA, yeah. So the FAA says, here's what we're going to do. We're the regulatory agent. All of these planes stay on the ground until we say otherwise. And you now heard at the top of the hour, uh, Alaska announcing the obvious that none of these planes will be flying before Saturday. But that's what's in the strange waters we're in, Joan. The regulators, the manufacturer, and the airlines can't even get on the same page about what has to be inspected before the planes can fly again. And, you know, one thing that bothered me was... As a as a passenger who trusts my life to these things, you know, United was like, oh, we grounded them. Oh, we inspected them. They were fine. Oh, wait, the government's going to inspect them. Oh, my goodness, we've got loose bolts. They didn't find loose bolts themselves. Nobody like said, hey, Harry, hand me a wrench. I want to test these bolts. You, you know, Joan, I, I wish I could tell you the answer to that. But since we're all learning about these things again, to me. As someone who covers this every day, the most frightening thing I heard is that this plug that goes into the side of the the fuselage is held together with just four bolts, not 10, not hundreds, not a thousand rivets or something like that. Four bolts essentially hold this plug to the rest of the plane. So United inspected the first 18 or 20. They have like 79 of these aircraft um, and they were fine. But then as they kept inspecting them again, with an unapproved inspection procedure that the regulators say wasn't good enough anyway, even at that, they found planes that had loose bolts. But do we know whether the bolts were just loose or mal malmanufactured or badly installed? We don't know that yet because there's very little paperwork and very little procedures to follow here. Because this is something that's literally never happened before. And these this is a black swan event. Yeah. As they these call planes it. with this uh, with this hatch halfway down. I read something about um, Boeing thought that this was a really good way to design planes to give carriers more flexibility. I guess the idea being that. If you wanted to carry cargo instead of people, you had, what, another way to get it in and off the plane? Do I have anything like that right? You have some of it right. Boeing says it's a good idea. What that means, what people who are listening should mean, Boeing thought it would be cheaper. So we make one kind, we make this one plane all the way 
have it, and every one of the planes we make like this has this cockpit, has this exit door that's plugged up. The reason why they have the exit door plugged up is that if you're a discount airline and you really want to put in as many seats as you can, the government says, well, then you'll need an extra exit door. Hence, that door would be Uh used as an actual exit door. But because Alaska and Hawaii, I know people who've flown Alaska and United would be shocked to hear that there's extra room on the plane. (laughs) But Alaska and United do not put as many seats as you could put on that plane. So the exit door is not required. Hence, the plug that plugs it up and the panel that goes on top of it. Logic would dictate if this was a country that worried about manufacturing quality over profits, they would say, I'm sorry, you should not build a plane that way. An airline will order the planes. They'll tell you how many seats they want to put in it. It'll either need that extra exit door or it won't. And if Mm -hmm. it doesn't need that extra exit door, make a solid fuselage. But airlines like to save money, too, and they like to hold that back and say, well, maybe one day people will accept even less like room than we give them now, so maybe we will want that panel there and that exit door there. So the problem we have here at base, Joan, after we get through the, the problems with the manufacturing and the problems with what will happen here, is a culture now that says our preeminent and, frankly, only jet manufacturer, Boeing, no longer prides itself on being the best. It prides itself on being the most profitable. And this is what happens when you chase profits over everything. And no one denies that, including Boeing. They're no longer a bunch of geeks who make great equipment. They're a bunch of geeks who are run by a bunch of lawyers who are, who are answering to stockholders who say, where's the money? Show me the money. This is showing Boeing showed the money to the stockholders on the Boeing 737 MAX series, and this is what we get for it. Joe, do we have to worry about the exit doors that already exist in planes, the ones that, like, you know, take you out over the wing if you have to? No, because those already, we know the holes are there. Those were designed to be doors. Um, What I would be concerned about, Joan, and I want to be careful here, this is me talking, okay? A different series of 737, the Boeing 737-900, they are not coated max aircraft has the same cutout for the extra exit door and the same plug the faa the faa may decide at some point after looking there apparently are about 173 to 175 of these max aircraft that have this plug well there are hundreds more of this set of this 900 series which are not max aircraft that also have the plug. The FAA may decide, you know, with, we better look at those as well. Um, the last time they grounded the 737 MAX series, they thought it would be a matter of weeks. It ended up being 18 months. So, you know, Alaska and United over the weekend rushing to inspect these planes and put them in the sky, we could be months away or possibly a year or more away from these planes coming back which means there'll be lots of cancellations, lots of confusion. And if you've got some trips booked, you may want to look at your aircraft, uh, go to your, you know, go to your reservation section online. It'll tell you the aircraft 
and maybe try to book away just for just for your own safe, not so much safety, but for your own mental well-being and to save the fact that a month before you fly, the airline will say, yeah, those planes are still not flying. So we've had to cancel your flight and you've got that much less time to figure out what your itinerary would be. Um, there has been I saw one article, I don't know, yesterday or today that raised the question, you know, should we still allow um, people to have a child on their lap? And they gave this explosive decompression as a possible concern that, you know, if you didn't have a good grip on that kid or that kid wasn't part of uh, your seatbelt, that, I mean, we were really hugely lucky that nobody got sucked out of this plane. Absolutely. There, uh, Dominic Gates, a brilliant uh, reporter at the Seattle Times, has an interview. Go to the Seattle Times. He has an interview with the mother of a, a teenager who is in row twenty, row ahead, not the not the row where the seats where the uh, door blew out, but the row ahead of that. And he was at the window side, and she tells the tale. Of, and she tells it well because not only is she a lawyer, but she's an ex-journalist. So she's always, you know, we're all journalists like us. We're always looking at things. She tells the tale of basically holding on to her son to make sure he's not blown out of the plane. Oh. Oh. If you are, if you are a young family with what's called a lap child, uh, I don't have children, Joan. I know you do, and you may have flown with your with your daughter in the, back in the day. Um, I would never put a child on my lap. I would get him a car seat and lock him into the car seat. But then again, I'm super careful. I would never let an unaccompanied minor be on an aircraft. Mm-hmm. I don't. To me, I don't understand why the airlines allow this or take responsibility for it. You know, but if your if your child is under two years old, they're allowed to be on the lap on your lap. Um, if you were not buckled in, I'll, I'll make it even worse for you, Joan. Not just children. Because this plane was still in what the what the industry calls the climb out, it, it had just taken off and was only at sixteen thousand feet, where usually you reach cruising altitude thirty five to forty thousand feet. The seatbelt sign was still on, so everyone, or let's assume ninety percent of the people listened to the seatbelt sign, was were seated in their seat and buckled in. If this had happened at 30,000 feet or 35,000 feet after the pilots had released the seatbelt sign, people would have been walking around, you know, waiting online to go to the the lavatory or something or just, you know, standing and might have been sucked out. So as bad as this was, this could have been much worse. And kudos, by the way, just because it should be mentioned, an all-female flight deck, both the both the pilot and the first officer were women. They brought this plane down safely. And boy, do they deserve all the kudos we could give them. Because this was, you don't train for something like this. You know, this has to be part of why you're a pilot, that you just think you can handle almost anything. And and this flight deck did a fabulous job bringing this plane down safely. I don't think that's been said enough because we're so obviously engaged in why it happened. Mm -hmm. No one has said enough, and the pilots have not spoken yet, to my knowledge, about what a terrific job they did bringing this plane down safely and keeping people alive. 
You know, it, now that you mentioned that, it occurs to me that having a big hole in the fuselage, like halfway back um, along the plane, could have, I mean, one would think that would weaken the structural integrity of the whole fuselage. You know, you come down in a hard landing with that, God only knows what other damage occurs. And, and Joan, I, we're of an age where the movie Goldfinger is always on our minds. Remember at the end where somebody shoots a bullet on the plane and it breaks a window and it sucks Goldfinger out of the plane? <laughs> uh, I mean, and that was just a little bullet hole. Now, that was poetic license in the 60s. That really can't happen. But you know a gaping hole in the side of an aircraft like this plane? People could have been sucked out. Oh, my and God. I am sure when we hear these pilots talk, they would have had a substantial job in front of them um, just keeping the plane stable, not from the fuselage coming apart, but a rapid depressurization as they had, because the plane would have been, you're, you're about 10,000 feet, you're pressurized, basically. Um, they would have had to keep that plane stev- stable and, and running, you know, making sure it didn't go into a stall or or yank over to one side. And the drag um, with that, with that, the wind coming in there, that had to, especially since it was just on one side, that had to, that had to really make things tricky. Do, uh, Joe, I mean, I know there are sensors all over the plane, but did the pilots, as far as you know, did they immediately know what was going on? Or did somebody have to, like one of the flight attendants, have to pick up a phone and say, oh, by the way, we have a real problem here. Well, again, as we know, the cockpit door flew open. That would have given them a warning. Oh, yeah. Because there the you cockpit go. door. But we, we, we don't, and, and forgive me for using the journalistic term here, we don't have the tick-tock on this, the minute-by-minute minute breakdown of what happened. Um, that's still to be told. And unfortunately, just to bring up another security and safety issue, Joan, that we're grappling with, there's a thing called the, you know, we call them, um, colloquially, black boxes. Mm-hmm. Neither, there are two of them. Neither of them are black. One is one is a flight data recorder that's just an ongoing, you know, computerized version of what, what the plane aeronautics are doing. The other one is called the cockpit flight recorder, where you're actually recording the conversations of the pilots on the flight deck and what they're saying and what they're doing. That, unfortunately, only has a two-hour... Uh, recording time, and then it overwrites it. And much to my shock, apparently it never stops. So they obviously the, the, the both uh, black boxes were on the plane. The cockpit voice recorder was useless because it was over it was overwritten. Ugh. So we we won't even have that information. But again, the two pilots, I'm sure, will be able to reconstruct uh, with a great degree of accuracy what they did to keep to bring this plane down and we will safely and we will learn more in the weeks and months ahead i mean just for the record joan no one will recall this that we talked today a year from now but it'll be a year before the ntsb the national transportation safety board files their final report these things take a very long time um we won't know the exact recommendations they make or their exhaustive report on this um, for quite some time. Not to bring it back to politics, but 
we didn't get the final report on on one six until December thirtieth, right of of twenty twenty two. Politics like airline safety is a complicated thing, and it'll take a long time before we know the exact contours of what happened and what the government thinks. The NTSB is an independent agency. They answer to themselves only. They also can't make rules, but they will tell us what they think should be done. Unfortunately, that's a year to 18 months away. Well, Joe, I really appreciate getting your newsletter and, um, you know, getting your insights and all the latest information on stuff like this. And anybody who's listening, just go to joesentme.com and you can sign up and get the newsletter, get the daily emails. And it is um, incredibly worthwhile. Joe, thank you so much for explaining all this to us. Joan, always a pleasure. And one day, I promise, we'll go on the air and talk about wonderful places to travel <laughs> instead of all these crises or costs or all the things we end up talking about. I am. You better start that list right now, mister. I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. That sounds good. Um, we are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am pleased to uh, welcome back Jeffrey Korn, uh, former uh, Judge Advocate General Officer, Director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University. He's an international expert on things like the rules of war, and I can't think of a better person uh, to to talk to about the current situation in in Gaza and the ongoing military action there. Thank you, Professor Korn, for joining us. Thank you for having me again. You know, I hesitated there. I don't know quite what to call it. Is it a military action? Is it a war? Do And does it even matter if we have an appropriate label? Well, I mean, there are different labels for different purposes. For a matter, for the matter of international law, it's what international lawyers call an armed conflict. And the significance of that is once you have a situation of armed conflict, then the rules of armed conflict that come from international law become binding on all sides to the fight. Uh, So that's how I look at it. That's how most international lawyers look at it. I would say if you're a young Israeli soldier in Gaza, you're in the middle of a war. I mean, that's a pragmatic term, and most people understand what it means. It means hostilities between two organized armed groups. Mm-hmm. And so you say once something is an armed conflict, the rules of war are supposed to um, be accepted. Um, we've seen that in Ukraine with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, you know, Vladimir Putin does not follow any sort of rules of war. Um, what are you seeing in Gaza or do we... Do we uh, expect because the military from Israel is organized and government sponsored that they will follow the rules of war? But that since Hamas is kind of a, a more um, loose, non-governmental kind of organization that they won't? Well, let's be very clear. I mean, it's a bit of a, of a myth that Hamas, in terms of its military capability, is loosely organized. Hamas 
have spent 16 years organizing military capability along traditional lines. They have battalions, they have brigades, they have a chain of command, they have military capability. International law draws no distinction between whether you're part of a, a military group that's fighting on behalf of a state or fighting on behalf of a non-state organization. Both, you're still obligated under international law to fi- follow the rules of war. Now, that doesn't mean that they're always complied with, and this is a reality of modern warfare. It's very common for states, particularly democracies, to field forces that are obligated and, and are committed to respecting the rules of war, where they have to confront enemies who have no respect for the rules of war. But that doesn't release them from their obligation. They're still bound by those rules. It's just the reality that they have to confront another complexity of the battlefield. So I have no expectation that Hamas is interested in following the rules. In fact, they see the rules as a source of vulnerability for the Israeli defense forces. But I also have no doubt whatsoever that Israeli forces and the commanders that lead those forces are emphasizing that in spite of Hamas's pervasive violations, they still have to do the best they can to follow the rules in these very difficult circumstances. You know, Professor Korn, I realize that maybe we ought to back up a little bit. You're talking to a layperson who has done little or no uh, academic reading in this area. And I know your books are probably a little a little too high level for me. I mean, I believe you co-authored National Security and the Constitution, National Security Law Principles and Policy, Law in War, a Concise Overview. Frankly, this sounds a little bit over my head. So let's back up. What When we say the rules of war, what are we talking about? What are the rules? Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, I, that's a great question because there is complexity to the law, but there's also common sense basic principles. And those basic principles of the law are what the International Court of Justice has called the cardinal rules for any war. And there really are about four or five key principles that every young military leader has to know and has to embrace. The first is called distinction. That means you're only allowed to deliberately attack enemy personnel and military objectives. Those are things that the enemy has transformed into military value. It could be the steeple of a church that the enemy is using for observation. It could be uh, underground uh, beneath a hospital where the enemy has place the bunker. But you can only deliberately launch your attacks against legitimate military objectives. The second rule is called the rule of precaution. And that means when you know attacking that target will put civilians at risk, you have to implement everything that you can feasibly do to minimize that risk without giving up your military advantage. Things like warnings, things like changing the timing of your attack or maybe considering a different tactic or a different weapon system. The third requirement is what we call proportionality. And that's just a rule that, that, that is a manifestation of the principle that even in war, the ends cannot always justify the means. So if you're going to attack a target and you know you can't avoid harming civilians, you have to make a judgment that the value of attacking that target outweighs the risk to the civilian population. In fact, what the law says is 
if the risk to the civilian population is assessed as excessive compared to your military advantage, then you have to forego the attack. And the last rule is the principle of humanity. And that is a rule that simply tells soldiers that while there is a lot of necessary suffering that's going to be inflicted in war, you're never justified in inflicting unnecessary suffering. And once somebody is subdued and out of the battle, whether they're captured or incapacitated by wounds, you have to treat them humanely. Those are the four key principles of the law. And if we focus on those four principles, we can really use them as a barometer, if you will, to gauge the credibility and legitimacy of a military organization engaged in combat. Who makes these calls? Well, ultimately, in battle, it's commanders. Commanders bear an awesome responsibility to make judgments about who to attack, what to attack, when to attack, and how to attack. And they've got to carry that burden on their shoulders in the fight, and they have to carry it for the rest of their lives. So just take the example of precautions. If I were a commander in Gaza and I identified an enemy commander under a building, in a bunker under a building, I would have to make a judgment as first whether or not I could issue a warning to the civilians in that building to get out. Now, I might not be able to do that because if I issue a warning to them, then it's going to allow that enemy commander to flee the scene and I'll lose the opportunity to attack him. But I have to make, and and so I have to carry the burden of deciding is the value of attacking that commander so significant that I know that I am going to put the lives of innocent civilians in jeopardy. And even if I believe that the commander put himself there for the purpose of shielding himself from attack, by being around civilians, I still have the obligation to mitigate risk to civilians as best I can. And these are decisions that are made day in and day out by commanders at every level in a, in a professional military, whether we're talking about the IDF in Gaza or we're talking about American commanders that were fighting in Afghanistan or Iraq or in other locations. And these are not easy decisions, but ultimately, They're not made by lawyers. They're made by commanders. That is the ultimate burden of command, making decisions related to the employment of deadly combat power. But let's remember that the mission of that commander is 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 a brutal mission. It's to close with and destroy your enemy through fire and maneuver as efficiently as possible. So it's a very difficult balance that they have to strike between limiting human suffering, but also efficiently bringing about the submission of their enemy. It would seem like the sort of thing that could be questioned with 2020 hindsight. How much latitude um, are people who make these decisions given to, frankly, make a mistake? Well, I mean, this is one of the... um, concerns that people like me have when we watch the narratives related to the conflict in Gaza. It is tempting to engage in hindsight critiques of these decisions, and it's also tempting to simply take an aggregate number of civilian casualties and assume that the conduct of the operations must be illegal and illegitimate. And both of those approaches to critiquing 
uh, legality and war are terribly unfair. Uh, the, the test is not what the outcome is. The test is, did that commander, under the circumstances available at the time, make a reasonable judgment? And that notion of reasonableness is not alien to any other areas of the law. It's the same question that we ask when a police officer uses deadly force. We don't judge that officer on whether his judgment was perfectly right. We ask whether, under the circumstances, his judgment of the need to use force was reasonable. So if you have a police officer who unfortunately shoots somebody who has a, a, a fake gun that looks very real, that might have been a mistake, but it might have been a reasonable mistake. The same mm-hmm. principle applies in war. Commanders cannot be held to a strict liability standard of perfection. And in war, it's even more complicated because of the fog of war. So we expect them to do the best they can. And when they are judged, that is the standard they have to be judged by. Not did they make a perfectly accurate judgment, but under the circumstances that they were able to assess, did they make a reasonable judgment? You use the term fog of war, and I've certainly heard that term and read that term before. Can you tell us exactly what it means Sure. It means the inherent uncertainty and chaos of battle. And one of the great challenges of a military commander is being as accurate as possible. Put yourself in the position of that Israeli commander in Gaza today, trying to attack an enemy commander. The last thing that commander wants to do is put his troops in jeopardy and waste his resources on an attack that's against something that's not really there. So the commander is going to be constantly demanding from his intelligence and operations officers the most accurate, effective information possible to inform those attack judgments. But the enemy gets a vote in this. So the enemy wants to confuse the situation. The enemy wants to obscure knowledge. The enemy wants to conceal its positions. It wants to complicate the attack judgments by surrounding itself with civilians and civilian property. And a commander in a time-sensitive process has to cull through all this information and make the best decision as possible under the circumstances. And you can imagine that one of the really significant elements of this fog of war is time and intensity. So the, the less time you have to make a decision... And the more intense the situation of combat at that moment, the harder it is to be completely accurate. And this is the great challenge that that warriors face on the battlefield is trying to make the right judgment and achieve the right effect in a situation where they can never have perfect clarity. I want you to talk about what we're seeing in Gaza this um, I mean, this isn't like what we see in Ukraine, where there's tanks rolling over the fields. I mean, this is an urban area. How does that change? Does it change the rules of war? Does it change the way war is waged? Well, it doesn't change the rules of war. That's very clear. The rules are not contingent on your operational environment. But urban combat, particularly what uh, what soldiers and, and service members who are familiar with this would call ground force maneuver combat, where you have ground forces 
that are maneuvering uh, to get an advantage and defeat their enemy is the most is the is the most dangerous type of combat imaginable, and it's the type of combat that commanders are taught to avoid at all circumstances. Having said that, if you are a defending force, that urban terrain gives you immense advantages over a militarily superior force because it reduces the effectiveness of their advanced combat capability, especially when you're operating underground because it negates the benefit of a lot of advanced intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance capabilities. Hamas knows this. They've been preparing for this for 16 years. And that's why the majority of the combat that's occurring in Gaza is occurring in the most densely populated areas of Gaza. Gaza is not one giant urban terrain. There is a lot of dead space in Gaza, but Hamas doesn't want to operate there because they know that the IDF will have significant advantage over them in those areas. They have embedded themselves in the most densely populated areas to complicate the nature of combat. What it does do, again, though, is it it increases that fog of war. It negates the effectiveness of uh, fire and maneuver capabilities, and it means that the IDF forces have to get into the dirt into the rubble, and root out their enemy. And that is a very dangerous proposition. So again, you know, this notion that it's, it's David and Goliath, that the IDF can simply stand back and pound, pound away at Hamas is just not realistic. They are engaged in close combat. The, the good, the, you know, anybody who's seen the, the program, for example, like Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, where you have infantry soldiers you know, within 30 or 40 meters of their enemy, that's what's happening in Gaza on a day-in and day-out basis. Is there any way for me, as a civilian, to look at the various pieces of video that are coming out and judge whether or not this war is being waged according to the rules of war and and most effectively for an urban area combat? It would seem to me the answer to that would be no. Well, listen, I think that that as as members of the public and civil society, we have a right to question the the respect for law when a democracy uh, is compelled to fight in a conflict. And so I I completely understand why people are interested in this and why they're concerned about civilian casualties and the destruction of civilian property. I don't think even for me, and I was in the army for 22 years, I never fought in a place like Gaza. So even for me, I have a hard time fully comprehending the challenge that uh, is faced in that environment. What I would say is this, if you are going to judge the legitimacy of a military organization engaged in combat, the most significant touchstone of um, assessment is asking a simple question. What side is trying to minimize civilian casualties and what side isn't? And if we ask that question about Gaza, I think the ledger is clear. It's not always effective. You can't prevent all civilian casualties in war. War can be awful and lawful at the same time. But we know 
day to day that the Israelis are at least trying as best they can to mitigate civilian uh, casualties in Gaza. And Hamas is doing the exact opposite. They've emplaced their assets among the civilian population. They have embedded their tunnels under uh, high-rise structures, knowing that if the Israelis want to destroy the tunnel, they've got to destroy the building above it. They have prevented civilians from evacuating areas. They have commandeered and stolen um, uh, humanitarian aid that's supposed to go to the civilian population. And they routinely distort the, the truth about casualty numbers, all of this to advance their information campaign. On the other hand, you have the Israelis who, when they can, they use precision engagement capability. They've got uh, intense efforts to use intelligence to verify the nature of targets. They issue literally millions of warnings to civilians to avoid certain areas because they know there's going to be intense hostilities. They've opened up humanitarian corridors. They're allowing aid to come through their own border. It's not perfect, and they can always do better. But at least you have one side that's trying and one side that isn't, which I think is the ultimate touchstone of legitimacy in in the conduct of hostilities. So people who say, well, you know, I agree with you. I've seen the warnings, you know, um, clear out of this particular area. And others are saying, oh, you know, those are just they're just those those are pro forma warnings um, that don't mean anything. They're ticking. They're ticking off a box because um, the people have nowhere to go or they have no transportation or it's more dangerous where they're being told to go. Um how much how how much is expected of um of frankly the uh the israelis here because you know i mean you said they they are offering warnings and they are but people are saying well the those warnings are are meaningless you know it's just they just want the rest of the world to think that they're doing things right well, listen, you, you, we could spend a lot of time trying to speculate on the counter narrative, right? What if they didn't do it? What if they issued no warnings? What if they opened up no evacuation corridors? Then, then it would be much worse. But you ask a good question. How much are they required to do to help civilians avoid the consequences of combat? And the legal answer to that is very straightforward. They're obligated to do everything they assess is feasible. So if you are an Israeli commander, you can't worry about the fact that the world is going to be dismissive on your efforts to mitigate civilian risk because they're going to say it's pro forma. You have a legal and moral duty to do what you can to mitigate that civilian risk. You can issue a warning and perhaps half the people will ignore it. But if half the people obey it and it saves their lives, then that's a, that's a positive outcome. And uh, the, most of the, of the public discourse on the war has gravitated towards the casualty numbers, the casualty numbers that are being provided by Hamas, which obviously have to be taken with a grain of salt. I think the latest number is 23,000 people have been killed in Gaza during this conflict. Hamas never includes in that number what number of that 23,000 were enemy fighters. I mean, obviously, in a two-month or three-month campaign, the IDF is killing 
Hamas fighters. They estimate approximately 8,000 to date, which makes sense because they started with a force of about 35,000 fighters. So if 8,000 of those casualties were military or enemy fighters, and you have 15,000 civilians killed in a battle that's occurring in the most densely populated area in the world against an enemy that's deliberately using civilians for cover and camouflage and human shielding, you have, and again, I don't want to be dismissive of the human loss here. It's tragic. And it's all because of Hamas. But just objectively, you have about a one to two enemy to civilian casualty ratio. And I would say that if you look at urban battles historically, that is a remarkably low ratio. I mean, if you look at battles, of course, I mean, if you look at the battles in in Fallujah, if you look at the battles in um, in Ramadi, if you look at the fighting in World War Two in Manila or the urban battles in Berlin, the, the civilian to military casualty ratio was substantially higher. And again, I think every civilian death in war is tragic. And none of these deaths would have occurred but for the October 7th attack. And many of them would have been avoided if Hamas was as committed to protecting the civilian population as the law demands of them. But the narrative that the the civilian casualty ratio is outrageous, I think is just not valid. And it's a it's a reflection of the fact that the IDF has actually done as best they can in this very difficult environment. It must be um, particularly difficult to be a member of the media and try to bring this story home accurately. I, I'm thinking of that one hospital where uh, the Israeli soldiers like cleared it floor by floor and they found evidence of a command center. And at first it was like, oh, did they plant it? And and then there was um, uh, there was a report that, the you know, the government says that there really wasn't enough evidence. And then it was like, oh, they found a tunnel. Oh, well, maybe there really was a command center, uh, a command center there. I mean, it's I, I it seems to me the journalists trying to cover this are also experiencing the fog of war here. I mean, how are people supposed to have a feeling about this when when the people who are there on the ground can't always figure out what's going on? Oh, I don't. There's no question that. I mean, the isn't there an old saying that the first report from a battle zone you should never believe because it's going to change? Yeah, I mean, that's think pretty of much true rocket. of any big major breaking story I've found. Right. But think of the rocket that hit uh, the, the the hospital compound early on when the when the lead stories of the New York Times and CNN and BBC were Israelis attack hospital. And then we find out that it was a, a rocket that was fired at Israel by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that went off course. I was actually in a briefing this morning that was done by the International Law Division of the Israeli Defense Force, and, and, and they talked about these hospital situations. The Israeli Defense Forces have not attacked any hospital. What they've attacked are Hamas assets around hospitals. Now, when they've done that, somebody's been fighting them. Somebody's been shooting back at them, not patients, not doctors. I mean, that alone tells you that Hamas has committed the primary violation 
of putting its military assets around in close proximity to civilian hospitals, which is prohibited by the law. And when they do that, again, they give the Israeli Defense Forces uh, a dilemma. Either they, they let the Hamas fighters stay there with immunity or they conduct an operation. And if we look at the way they conducted the operations, particularly against Al-Shifa Hospital, it actually is a reflection of this rule of precautions that I'm talking about. The Israelis gave uh, multiple warnings. And instead of attacking those underground tunnels with some type of standoff, you know, high explosive capability, they conducted a ground assault, and which is very dangerous, but mm-hmm. it, it has the effect of reducing the risk of causing damage to the hospital. They also came in behind that assault with humanitarian resources for the hospital, including fuel. And I want you to imagine the risk that an Israeli commander takes when he tells his subordinates, you have to drive a fuel tank truck through combat area where we know Hamas would love to blow it up. So Professor Korn, we have so much more, more to talk about, uh, but the we have to break for news at the top of the hour or the computer is going to be very unhappy. I'm talking to Professor Jeffrey Korn, uh, former uh, JAG officer and director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech. We have so much more to talk about and we're going to get to it right after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Professor Jeffrey Korn, who's a former judge advocate general officer and director of the Center for Military Law and Policy at Texas Tech University. He's an international expert on things like the rules of war. And um, our discussion has been, Professor Korn, and I thank you for this, extremely educational for me. Um, I would imagine, though, that unless somebody comes from your world, I mean, people like not just me, but most people don't know anything about uh, the the nitty gritty of your world. Uh, do you find yourself explaining this stuff over and over again to folks like me? Well, listen, I'm a law professor now and explaining stuff like this is, <laughs> is the bread and butter business of my life. And I love doing it. And yes, I do find let, let me say this. I'm very grateful for someone like you to invite me on and give me the opportunity to share some background on this information with your viewers. I don't expect them to agree with all my judgments on how the law is being implemented, but we have to have a a common baseline understanding of what the law requires. And I do find it interesting that a lot of the um, angst over what we've seen in the news coming out of Gaza and Israel has has made a lot of assumptions about what the law is and what the law requires uh, that oftentimes are not necessarily, it's fairly clear to me, are not necessarily fully informed. So um, I applaud, I applaud someone like you for giving your listeners the opportunity to think about what is the international legal framework applicable to a war like this. And it, it cuts both ways. I encounter many people who say things, for example, like, Why should the Israelis care about the rules of war when they're fighting an enemy as barbaric as Hamas? And and my answer is precisely because of that, because the civilians are the victims, period. And and you can't victimize them even further because the 
the tyrannical regime that governs them doesn't care about them. It makes the imperative of trying to reduce the suffering of war all that much more important. So I think that coming from a military background, I have an appreciation that these rules do more. They're, they're more than just window dressing. They, they protect the moral integrity of the young men and women who we ask to do the business of fighting for us. And they play a very important function in that regard. I haven't known necessarily how to answer all the questions and critiques that have come from my listeners. But one thing that I, I, I have been able to figure out on my own is that anybody who sees this as completely one-sided is either incapable of nuance or is 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 doing is is talking about these issues to promote a, another agenda because i don't you know i mean like like you know all the people who say well you know we just should be a ceasefire that's it just just a ceasefire that's what we need here it sort of ignores exactly where this you know armed conflict became uh where it came from and, you know, um, and I, I get really frustrated by the people who are completely on one side of this issue uh, and demonize. That's the problem that, you know, if you want to be on one side of the issue, I guess that's all right. But then they're demonizing the other side, like somehow. Um, well, even I even had a texture while we were talking, say, imply that somehow the Israeli government was at fault for what's going on now because they supposedly had intelligence that something like this was brewing. And, you know, Professor Korn, they didn't do anything about it. And listen, I'm not quite I sure what to do with that. Yeah, well, listen, first off, I am completely empathetic to people who want to see the suffering of war end. We all should be. It's terrible. Civilians are victims of war in any war. And and if there was a way to stop it effectively, then that's something that should be done. But we also have to understand that wars are not fought, fought just for the purpose of fighting. They're fought to achieve a strategic objective. Israel's strategic objective is to restore its security, to exercise its right of self-defense, to tell the, the 400,000 Israeli citizens who've evacuated southern Israel that it's safe to move home. In order to do that, they've got to destroy Hamas's military capability. And that means they've got to continue to press this offensive. Hamas has its own strategic objective, and it's very clear. That objective is to still be there when the fighting stops. They know they can't defeat the Israeli defense forces in combat. That's not what they're trying to do. What they need to do is create conditions to force the Israeli government to terminate its operation before they're defeated. And what's the best way they can do it? Create conditions that necessitate Israeli forces conducting attacks that result in destruction of civilian property and civilian suffering. It, it plays right into the Hamas strategic end state. So calls for a ceasefire are, are understandable because we all should be heartbroken at the images of, of human suffering and parents carrying their wounded or dead children. Those parents don't care who was legally responsible for that death. All they know is that they've lost their family member. 
But if we are so quick to demand that, then essentially what we're doing is we are handing Hamas the strategic victory they covet, and we are depriving the Israelis of being able to achieve the legitimate goals of self-defense that were necessitated by this brutal attack and by an enemy that has vowed to do this every chance it gets in the future. And so it's a very difficult um, intersection of, of the human instinct of compassion and morality with the real politic of strategic self-defense. I, um, you said something about, um, you know, how the Israeli goal here is to eliminate Hamas. What does that look like? Is that just, um, uh, killing or capturing the known leaders of this military force? Does each and every soldier have to be eliminated? What do you think victory looks like if the goal is eliminate Hamas? Okay, so I don't think the goal is eliminate Hamas. The the elimination of Hamas is not a feasible military outcome. I guarantee you that the chief of the defense staff of the IDF has told the prime minister in the war cabinet, military power cannot eliminate Hamas. Hamas is a movement. It's an ideology. What the military can do is destroy Hamas's military capability. Destroy is a doctrinal military term. It means render your enemy combat ineffective without substantial reconstitution. So what the Israeli commanders have done is they've taken that strategic objective of self-defense and they have translated it into military objectives. Those military objectives, the principal objective is to render Hamas ineffective as a military threat. To do that, they've got to identify what are the critical aspects of Hamas's military capability, command and control, communications, logistics, rocket launch capability, uh, rocket um, production capability, uh, access to weapons and ammunition. Those are the discrete objectives that the IDF is attacking on a day-to-day basis. And one of the reasons why we're seeing such visible images of widespread destruction is because one of the most powerful assets Hamas has developed over the last 16 years is a subterranean logistics and command and control and movement network called the Gaza subway. This tunnel system that they deliberately run under densely populated areas is a critical military objective if you are going to disable Hamas's ability to threaten you in the near future. And to destroy it necessitates conducting attacks that oftentimes result in substantial destruction of the civilian infrastructure above those tunnel systems. That's not Israel's fault. That's Hamas's fault. One of the things that I have hesitated to bring up, but uh, seems to be in the news more and more, is the use of sexual violence. Uh, We saw it in Ukraine, and we are getting reports of it in, in this conflict. Obviously, you know, Hamas, as you said, is not following the rules of war, 
which uh, certainly would preclude that kind of violence. But, you know, is there is there any way to prosecute people who commit sexual violence as part of a military effort. I mean, Vladimir Putin, from everything I've read, famously believes, you know, there are no rules of war. And the more terrified, the more horrible you can be, the more likely you are to win. Um, it's just it's just so. Uh, 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 it's. I don't have the words. I, 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 I don't have the words. It's so disturbing. It's disturbing, but it's also historically foolish, right? I'm in Lubbock, Texas. Why do Texans remember the Alamo? We don't remember it because it was a stunning victory for Texas independence. We remember it because of the brutality of Santa Ana and the Mexican forces in refusing to take prisoners. History is replete with examples of um, barbaric conduct in war that has a backfiring effect that actually makes your enemy that much more determined. And I think in many ways, the barbarism of the attacks of October 7th are manifesting that again. I mean, the the unity of the Israeli population to, to finish this war, even though they're suffering significant casualties in the battle. We haven't seen it in decades. And, and you have to imagine if Hamas had limited its attacks to the military base across the border, had only captured IDF soldiers, there certainly would have been a defensive response. But would it have been as significant as we're seeing now? Maybe not. In terms of accountability, you know, you bring up an interesting point. The narrative of the, the public narrative of the last two months has been almost exclusively on the question of whether Israel is committing war crimes as a result of the destruction of um, uh, uh, the Gaza infrastructure and death of, of civilians. There are ongoing war crimes every day by Hamas that we're not talking about. Every time Hamas launches a rocket at Israel, they're committing a war crime. And they've launched more than 10,000 rockets at Israel. Because they're not even trying to hit a military target. They're simply trying to attack civilians, which it it doesn't even raise the issue of proportionality. That is a blatant violation of that principle of distinction. Uh, Taking hostages is a war crime. Retaining hostages is a war crime. Sexual violence, denying them access to medical care, denying them access to the Red Cross or some neutral arbiter to check on their health and safety. Those are all categorical violations of international law. They're also crimes within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Will these the people responsible for this ever be held accountable? Well, I am confident that if Israel captures them, the Israelis will prosecute them for war crimes, undoubtedly. And if Israel doesn't capture them, the burden is going to be on the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, who has jurisdiction over Gaza, to bring charges against them. Whether they'll ever be brought before a a court is a very different question. But there's no doubt in my mind that the prosecutor for the ICC is going to have to do something to demonstrate to the rest of the world that this type of barbarism is at a scale that cannot be ignored and must be subject to accountability. 
You said that it's sexual violence is an ineffective technique of war because it makes your opponent all the more determined to wipe you out or achieve victory. So is it like we see in Ukraine? Is it state sanctioned to Putin where, you know, the more we can do to terrorize people, the better? Or is it a sign of an undisciplined and unruly military force that's out of control? Is there any way of even knowing? (laughs) Yes, I think both. So let's take the first. In, 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 in the Russian forces with Hamas, it's calculated. This was not random. This was calculated and it was sanctioned by the leadership and it was designed to contribute to the shock effect of the terror that was inflicted. And in many ways, I think it's not hard to infer that one of the reasons Hamas was so barbaric on October 7th is they were hoping to bait the Israelis into a very significant response. Because, again, what have they done with that response? They've twisted it, made it look like they're the victims, and it has created an intense pressure on Israel uh, to stop its operations against Hamas. So it's ironic that the extremity of their barbarism uh, is being was I think was calculated to get the type of response that they got because the Hamas leadership could care less about the Palestinian people. They don't care about Palestinian casualties. That's just ammunition in their information warfare campaign. In terms of ill discipline, it is a classic manifestation of a poorly disciplined force that they violate the rules of war. And it is the responsibility of commanders at every level, as soon as they start to sense those violations, to take corrective actions. And by the way, I will say there have been some incidents in Gaza where young Israeli soldiers have done some stupid things, defacing property and uh, posting videos uh, of, um, of degrading commentary when they're in the homes of Palestinians and the Israeli military, as it should be, is investigating those acts of misconduct because discipline means, especially when you're fighting a lawless enemy, that you have to hold your subordinates to certain standards at every level. And as soon as you start to um, ignore that responsibility, you are setting the conditions for much more serious violations. So it is an absolute manifestation of calculated terrorism and ill discipline of a military organization. There were reports that some of the hostages were not being released because they had been and were continuing to be sexually assaulted. And do you think that's part of why some of the hostages have not been released? Uh, my guess is that that's more a manifestation of opportunism, and it's absolutely um, tragic. It, it's horrifying trying to imagine being the parent or the sibling or the relative of a hostage, believing that that hostage has been rendered a sexual slave. I mean, what are we talking about here? There is no moral equivalency between the parties to this conflict, and we should be acknowledging that and emphasizing that over and over. That doesn't mean the Palestinian people are not entitled to the sympathy that is justified by the suffering that they now have to endure. 
but we should be clear-eyed that that suffering falls, the responsibility for that suffering falls almost exclusively at the feet of Hamas and Hamas leaders who have no respect whatsoever for humanity and are using their own population, just like they're using Israelis, to advance their, um, their extremist ideological agenda. One thing that really took me aback when this first happened, again, I'm making reference to the people who seem incapable of nuance, or as I put it, incapable of walking and chewing gum. I mean, I can say I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu is a good leader. I can say I think the Israeli government has made some horrific mistakes, but that doesn't that I don't say say therefore October 7th was justified and you know we you know the Palestinians are suffering therefore there needs to be a complete and total ceasefire I've really been surprised at the fact that it seems like if you have one position you are incapable. I can think Benjamin Yahoo is a terrible man. I can think the Palestinians have had a terrible deal. I can still believe that October 7th was horrific and needs to be atoned for. Why is it that some people can't seem to maintain these kinds of disparate thoughts? Well, I think one of the great challenges in um, observing and critiquing this conflict is the problem of what I've called conflation, as you note. There are distinct issues related to Israel and the Palestinians. For example, I believe the Palestinian people are entitled to self-determination and they should have their own state. I wish Yasser Arafat had accepted Barack's offer at Camp David that Bill Clinton was pleading with him to accept and would have accepted, you know, 97% of the West Bank and East Jerusalem as the capital of the, the state of Palestine. I wish that had happened. And I think the Israeli government, as you know, has been neglectful of this process for a long time because I don't think Benjamin Netanyahu is particularly committed to a two-state solution and he, and he doesn't trust the Palestinians to govern themselves in a way that will ensure Israeli security. Okay, I get all that. That does not justify barbarism in the, in the way you seek to achieve your goal. And the thing that has stunned me the most is the way in which people conflate Hamas with the Palestinian people writ large and the Palestinian mm-hmm. cause writ large. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. You know, there are, there are uh, criticisms of Israel saying free Palestine well, I, or free Gaza. Well, I, I agree. We should free Gaza from Hamas. Hamas is the tyrannical autocratic regime that imposes its will on Gaza and has made the life of Gazans miserable for 16 years because they've had one goal, which is to develop their military capability to inflict harm on Israel. And so I agree with you 100%. You can, you can believe many different things. You can believe the, the, the Palestinians should have an independent state. You, should believe, you can believe that Gaza, the people of Gaza, are entitled to a better future and a better way of life. You can believe that the, um, the current government of Israel, the coalition that includes some very troubling ultra-nationalists, 
uh, politicians has exacerbated the divide between Israel and the Palestinian people. And you can also believe that Hamas is a pernicious, illegal and immoral organization that preys on the victimization not only of Israelis, but of its own people. And why it's impossible to, to, to carry all of those beliefs at the same time perplexes me as well. Professor Korn, thank you so much for this discussion. It has been so enlightening. I, uh, you did your job well. You taught us all a lot of things this hour. Well, again, I'm very grateful that you've given me the opportunity, and I wish you the best as the snow starts to fall in Chicago. Yes, it's going to be a snowy weekend here. Uh, but you know what? It's Chicago and it's winter and we're good at it. So I'm not too oh. worried about it. Uh, thank you for being here. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm sure you've seen the reporting. It's been in the Sun-Times. It's been in the Trib that... We are in the throes of a bad flu season. Ha! You thought I was going to say COVID. Well, yeah, there's that, too. And uh, some delightful new virus, well, new to me, called RSV. So uh, people are describing this as a triple threat. We are just, according to the Sun-Times, just starting to see increased hospitalizations from flu and COVID. Um, but it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. One of the things we've been following is a study that uh, North Shore Edward Elmhurst hospitals have been involved in looking at long COVID. Seems like a good time to get an update on that. So we're joined by a Dr. Nirav Shah, who's an infectious disease specialist at Endeavor Health, which is what North Shore, I guess, is uh, called these days. Uh, Dr. Shaw, thank you for being here. Hi, Joan. Thanks for having me again. Yes, always a pleasure. So um, are you seeing this same uptick that I've seen reported? And, and do you think this is going to be, it's going to get bad? Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're seeing that uh, within our hospitals at Endeavor, and this is kind of a, a national type uh, uh, uptick that we're seeing as well. And, you know, this is quite similar to what we saw last year, the year before, Generally, kind of around the holiday periods, people are flying more. They're getting together with families. So you tend to see, and it's also colder, so people are indoors more. So you tend to see this uptick of all these respiratory viral infections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, um, I really felt, I've had COVID, as I may have mentioned to you before, four times. And I really thought uh, this holiday season was probably uh, going to fell me once again. But uh, despite the fact that there were several occasions where I got together with family and friends, I did not get COVID, and I am so proud of myself. I take it as a personal accomplishment, though I realize my character had nothing to do with it. Well, that that is a good thing to hear because uh, I've had quite a few family and friends that have come down with a variety of different viral infections. It's been pretty pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, Before I talk to you about long COVID, I read something since we last spoke. You know, there's for a long time, there's been this sort of uh, nebulous diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. And people weren't sure if it was real or not, but people just getting these 
debilitating symptoms where they have this sort of generalized pain and utter exhaustion. And I just started reading that maybe what we've called chronic fatigue syndrome might be better described as a long flu. What do you know about that? What do you think about that? Yeah, so we, we, you know, in the infectious disease space, we've um, associated a variety of different viral illnesses with um, this prolonged chronic fatigue. So there's uh, mono, uh, we call it EBV, Epstein-Barr virus. That's frequently associated with it. There's other viruses like um, cytomegalovirus, CMV. What we're, I think what we found out with COVID, and it was a perfect kind of study, essentially, because the whole population was, uh, you know, had no immunity. Then all of a sudden, it kind of ripped through the entire global population. And we saw the after effects of long COVID, um, which kind of looked like chronic fatigue, is that there's probably a lot of viruses that cause this type of chronic fatigue, long COVID type um, syndrome, uh, flu potentially being one of them, in addition to, you know, COVID as we've seen. And that, that was really the first time that we got a good study to see uh, a population that was previously not immune to an infection all of a sudden get infected within a short period of time. We were able to, you know, dedicate a lot of research to understand this. So I think it's it's more common than we think with a variety of different viral illnesses. Hmm. We know that some people get long COVID and some people don't. I assume the same would be true with chronic fatigue syndrome or long flu. Do we know any characteristics that make people particularly susceptible to these longer forms of the illness? You know, I'm sure that there are some demographic characteristics, um, uh, potentially, you know, if you're female, maybe with age. Um, there are some other demographics that tend to have long COVID more often. Um, and then I think, you know, genetically, there's probably certain predisposition uh, type conditions, you know, genetically that would uh, kind of make you more susceptible to have these long term side effects. So I, I suspect there's things that we know, there's things that, uh, you know, are more genetic that uh, are, you know, having an effect on this. When we spoke before, this long COVID study was really, um, really getting off the ground. In the time that's passed since we last talked about this, um, what, if anything, have, have you guys been able to to learn about long COVID? So these are complicated studies. So there are four existing studies that I mentioned when I last came on uh, before the new year. Um, recover vital neuro sleep and auto. So they're all the recover studies. So two of these four studies are in the midst of recruitment. So recover vital, which was, uh, you know, we had a long conversation about the drug that they're studying as Paxlovid. So that study is in the midst of recruiting. And the hope is that in the coming months, we'll be able to complete out recruitment for that study so that we can find out whether Paxlovid works for long COVID uh, potentially by the end of this year. It takes some time to do these studies because the studies are fairly complicated. It requires um, a lot of patients from across the U.S. So we have a representative sample. Um, and then the analysis takes some time because we're collecting so much data. The Recover Neuro um, is a little bit further along in terms of recruitment because it doesn't require as many patients. 
Um, and so, again, the hope is that in the coming months, um, we're able to close out that study um, and get some data, uh, you know, by end of year uh, to understand if we're able to kind of reduce the impact of brain fog and what we call cognitive dysfunction, uh, uh, you know, within medicine. Um, recover sleep and recover auto. Recover sleep is um, targeting patients that are having sleep problems after, um, you know, a COVID infection that's lasting more than 12 weeks. That's, um, we're working to kind of get that started. Um, and recover auto is another study that we're working to get start, started. And that's really on autonomic dysfunction. And what that means is if the body is doing things um, automatically um, that it wouldn't normally do. So one of the syndromes around that is something called POT, where basically your um, heart rate starts speeding up um, at inappropriate times and it can cause dizziness. So that those um, recover sleep and recover auto are an activation. We're hoping to get those started in the coming few months. And then actually one new study um, just got um, announced um, and they're recruiting sites for this currently. It's called Recover Energize and that's for um, patients that have um, uh, essentially uh, fatigue, chronic fatigue essentially, um, uh, post-exertional malaise. So after any kind of exertional activities, you just don't feel well and just kind of feel like you need to kind of rest for a long period of time. So, so there's a suite of different studies um, trying to really understand all the different complexities around the different syndromes that we're finding with long COVID. And they're in, you know, they're actively recruiting and we're working to kind of um, really understand and get this information out to, <laughs> to, to clinicians. Um, we have a caller who actually has a question for you. Um, Mary is calling in from Elk Grove Village. Um, Mary, you're on with Dr. Nirav Shah. Go ahead with your question. Yes. Yeah, so prior to COVID, um, my son, uh, he, 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 it's hard to describe his symptoms, but he said one day he just felt like he was zapped and that he was walking around. It was like he was underwater. And his, the symptoms that he was describing to me, I said, well, you know, that sounds like maybe a sinus infection. But then he kept, you know, he had numbness in his hands. And then and I said, well, go to your doctor. So he goes to the doctor. Doctor, you know, can't find anything wrong with him. And eventually, because he's complaining so much, they did two MRIs on him, one with contrast and one without. And then he was sent to a neurologist and he, he said, the neurologist said it could be a virus just working its way out. I said, see, he's been tested for everything. And foolishly, I said that. The neurologist then said he has not been tested for everything. They could never find out what it was. And it was only until COVID hit and we started hearing about um, long COVID that he, he came to me and he was reading message boards and he's like, Mom. It's post-viral syndrome, and it's exactly what happened. It just took the virus so long to work its way out of his system. It was so frustrating for us because there was never a name for it. Yeah, Yeah. post-viral syndrome. Dr. Shaw, where does that fit into the universe of what we're talking about here? Right. I mean, I think it's – and, Mary, thanks for the the question. So the – Kind of like I stated earlier, there's probably a continuum of disease, and not everyone is affected by each of the stages. There is the acute infection, so you come down with the flu or COVID or RSV or one of these other viruses, and you're acutely sick. And that's generally what people tend to think of when they get infected with a, a, you know, a virus. 
but there is probably some period of time after where symptoms linger, this post-infectious period, where it could be kind of, um, it could be the, you know, the immediate time after the initial infection. So I don't know, uh, you know, when I had COVID, I had bad symptoms that lasted about, I don't know, 10, 12 days, but then I had a persistent cough that lasted for another two to three months. That doesn't actually constitute long COVID. Long COVID is if you are even further out. You have to be further than three months out. So that's the period where you can have, uh, these are like autoimmune type issues. There could be other things that are going on uh, with the body that are causing these symptoms a little further out. We're starting to learn a little bit more about what's causing some of these um, symptoms for COVID. So, you know, there's a spectrum of, um, you know, what can happen with certain, you know, certain viruses. And we're learning more and more about this. And COVID has helped to elucidate that these are these issues are more common than we think. Wow. Mary, thank you so much for that question. Um, Dr. Shaw, I want you to go back to brain fog. Uh, it's a term that's bandied about a lot, but is there an actual medical definition for what constitutes brain fog? And if so, what is it? Yeah, uh, a good question. Uh, I mean, I think brain fog is a nebulous kind of um, condition where you know, your cognitive abilities are no longer where they were, you know, before this type of long COVID. And I'm talking specifically about, you know, long COVID and brain fog. So whether it's remembering stuff, whether it is, you know, your ability to do any kind of executive functioning, like balancing your checkbook or, you know, being able to, um, you know, just carry out your daily activities or even just being able to kind of like read a book. So it's, you know, some combination of that that um, does not have another medical um, condition associated with it, you know, not related to a stroke or some other kind of organic cause that could potentially also cause these brain fog type issues. So that, you know, some kind of decrease in your brain functioning, not related to something, you know, not related to Mm -hmm. some organic other cause. I've heard of people having memory problems um, after all the other symptoms resolve, and not necessarily just old people, um, though I think that's uh, that's been happening as well. Is it possible to recover from COVID and and just not be able to remember things like you did before? You know, again, with this, we're we're learning more and more, and we're finding that. Uh, Everyone, you know, potentially has a different experience with this, right? Some people, they have a acute, some people have no symptoms at all when they're infected. Some people have serious uh, symptoms while they're infected and have, you know, long COVID. So I think it depends. And we're, we're seeing that people have varying different presentations. So I, I, it's, you know, possible that some of these symptoms can persist. Generally speaking, you know, there was a study, I think that was done out of France where um, I think a few months back where they looked at, you know, what percentage of patients ended up recovering fully from long COVID, how many kind of persisted in that state and how many got worse. Generally, most people tend to get better, but there is a small percentage of patients who kind of persist or even get worse. Um, so it, it, you know, it, it all depends. Wow. Um, I know that everybody's basic physiology or genetic makeup, that sort of thing. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, but it seems like those kinds of very seemingly minor differences 
are pretty darn consequential when it comes to COVID. They seem to play an outsized role, or is that just you know me observing as a layperson and not really having a good sense of what's going on here? It's a really good question. Um, it's a complex system, so it is not only you know your body, the genetics, the physiology, but it's also the virus. You know, there's different viruses circulating; they have different oh. mutations. That um, So I'll, I'll give you an example. Right now, there is one specific variant that has come out that is the main circulating virus right now. It's called JN1. And this variant descended from another variant called BA286. The BA286 is like our original COVID, except it has so many mutations that it allows itself to, um, you know, to have essentially evade someone's immunity. So if you've had COVID, like you've had COVID four times before, if you've been immunized before, there's some mutations here that make you get sick, even though you have that underlying immunity. And so this new variant, JN1, this has come about because it has more mutations on top of this BA286. So it allows it to transmit amongst people a lot faster. So in October, there was very little of this JN1 circulating around. Now, like, and this is nationally, um, there's, it, it's about 60% of all the viruses. So even, and there's multiple, multiple strains that are out. So, you know, it's a combination of the virus, how infectious it is, how it, it you know, the interplay with the virus and your, your body. So there's a lot of, it's a very complex system. So it's very difficult to understand how someone is going to uh, react to a given viral infection. Is the virus getting smarter I wouldn't say that a virus is getting smarter. It is, you know, it's called, uh, you know, natural selection. So the viruses are in constant competition with each other. So as the virus just naturally mutates, viruses that are more fit, that are able to evade immunity and get people sick and get them coughing so they can spread it or are able to transmit easily, they're the ones that end up kind of coming, uh, you know, coming about and causing, you know, the majority of the infection. So it's kind of, it, it's, it's almost like natural selection amongst the viruses. So not so much getting smarter, more, you know, I would think of it more as it's natural selection and the virus is just trying to propagate itself. And that's what's driving all of this. So when you're doing this study and you want to learn about um, all these different uh, symptoms that seem to hit some people after COVID. Are you also doing like genetic profiles of these people to see if you can say, oh my God, if they've got the X gene, uh, the X41 gene, then we know that they are highly likely to have this symptom. Or are you just trying to learn about the disease by just seeing how it progresses in these different people? Are we trying to figure out that individual component you were just talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is, uh, for patients that are interested, there are potentially um, ways to collect genetic data to understand some basic questions, you know, to really understand at the personal level, if your specific genetics compared to someone else's um, resulted in some improvement in your long COVID symptoms, that's very hard to do with what we're, we're trying to do with this study. So these study, you know, this is all, you know, basic statistics. Um, these studies are essentially powered to determine whether this drug works or not. And 
everything else, you know, each question that you want to ask requires a different number of patients um, uh, that you need to recruit to understand whether it makes sense or not. So these are things that they, you know, we, we call things primary outcomes when, you know, that's really what we're trying to solve. So the primary outcome is, you know, are these interventions working and helping with patient symptoms. There are some more exploratory outcomes where we're looking at potentially genetics and trying to understand if there's something that we can ascertain from the genetic makeup that makes, you know, a specific treatment better or not. So there there are some of those things, but those are harder to assess because our primary outcome is really, can we make people feel better, you know, and test out different um, interventions to do that? Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. Well, along those lines, if people are listening to this and and they're suffering from long COVID or have a friend or family member who's suffering from long COVID, is there any advice that you can give? Is there a diet? Is there a supplement? Is there a vitamin that might just possibly make them feel a little better? Uh, You know, so there is, again, this is heterogeneous group of symptoms that are coming with long COVID. So, you know, someone could have brain fog, someone can have, um, you know, they're just feeling kind of beat up when they exercise, someone could have autonomic dysfunction, sleep problems. So it's not like a one size fits all. Um, So that's what these studies are trying to do is trying to really look at um, with a very robust and rigorous way of testing out different treatment modalities, can we improve someone's symptoms? There isn't, there hasn't really been something in particular that, uh, you know, we can point to to say that this is what, you know, this is the silver bullet for this specific symptom or this syndrome. So that has not come about yet, but these studies are hoping to answer some of those questions. I mean, I think, you know, there's some very basic things you can do, right? If, um, you know, if you have, uh, you know, if you're, if you have brain fog and other things, you know, trying to exercise uh, your mind, trying to do therapy, cognitive therapy around it may help. And that's where some of the ideas came about, to, you know, what are the interventions we'd like to study? Similar, you know, this new study I mentioned, Recover Energize, which is uh, specifically around exercise intolerance. You know, the, the thought process is, can we have some kind of exercise regimen that will slowly get them back to where they are. So that's one of the, you know, one of the thoughts that, you know, that exists. So can we rehab people back into their normal state? That's a general concept. So that's something that, you know, generally we've done up until now without any evidence. We've done a lot of physical therapy, you know, sleep therapy, cognitive therapy. These are, these are some of the things that um, mm-hmm. are offered by their primary care physician or other COVID, long COVID specialists. I mentioned I've had COVID four times, and each time I've had it, it has been uh, less bothersome and of shorter duration. Is that because I've just gotten lucky which with, with whichever mutation I've gotten sick with? Or is my body learning how to fight it better? Yeah, it's, it's probably more so the latter, um, but there might be a component of the, the first condition that you mentioned. So just over time, you see this uncoupling of infection levels and illness severity. So that's really related to greater immune protection. So as you've had COVID before, your body is used to it. You've been vaccinated. Your body, you know, 
has that library of antibodies that as soon as it sees, you know, COVID come into your system, it's able to attack it and prevent you from having really serious symptoms. And then there's also a component where um, over time, these variants tend to, um, I mean, it's not always the case, but generally some of these variants tend to be less severe over time as they start to become more transmissible. You know, you think of the common cold, not as, you know, it doesn't cause a lot of disease severity, but it can, you know, propagate very quickly. You know, generally speaking, with this JN1 variant, there's, I saw some like prelim studies where some folks are thinking it might be more severe. Hard to say. It's not really, it's not, it's not, it's too early to know. But in general, it's really, you know, your own immunity that's causing you to have um, less symptoms and for it to, uh, your symptoms to resolve faster. I'm better. I'm stronger. I am learning how to deal with COVID, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, um, I'll take it. I'll take it. Dr. Nirav Shah, infectious disease specialist at Endeavor Health. Thank you for bringing us up to speed on this. Really appreciate the update. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, that is going to do it for me today. Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will uh, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow at 2 o'clock right here on this radio station. Join me then. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night. <laughs>